The Spectator is searching for the UK's brightest entrepreneurs to enter the Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, in partnership with Charles Stanley Wealth Managers. If you have a business that disrupts an existing market, a smart new way of doing things, or something that has incredible social impact, then apply by the 9th of July at spectator.co.uk slash innovator. Hello and welcome to the edition. Each week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing issues in the week's magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast. This week, why has Cambridge taken so much Chinese money? Plus, will the Church of England's new plans for modernisation leave us with an institution we even recognise? And finally, why are streakers so hilarious? First up, The Spectator's cover story this week looks into the ever tighter relationship between Cambridge University and China. To discuss, I'm joined by the author of the piece and Every Breath You Take, a study of China's surveillance state, Ian Williams, and Harry Goodwin, editor-in-chief of The Cambridge Student. Ian, in your cover piece this week, you look at how Cambridge has somewhat compromised its integrity because of its relations with China. When did this start to become a problem? I think it's been a problem for some time. But more recently, it's become more serious. Cambridge would argue they've always had a very strong relationship with China, research relationship and academic interest in, which which is fair enough. But I would date back the recent problems to what we might call the Cameron Osborne golden era. And that was very much like a starting gun, you know, bang, and everybody goes for the Chinese money. And it was almost as if any notion of due diligence, any notion of caution was thrown to the wind when it became official policy to grab Chinese money and Chinese business just as quickly as you could in quantities as large as you could get hold of. And I think that the creation, if we look at Jesus College, for instance, of the China Centre and the UK-China Dialogue Centre, since renamed, of course, date back to that era. They're both creatures of that time. And I think in both cases, they were not really created uh, as academic institutions, and they're better seen more as ways of ingratiating Jesus College with the Chinese, and ultimately to further other money-making ventures. And certainly in the early days, if you look at the nature of what their programmes, their backers, Uh, It's steering clear of anything which could be deemed controversial in the Chinese context, accepting money from the likes of Huawei. It was really quite disgraceful. And then on top of that, there were the the research tie-ups which have been multiplying in terms of Chinese money to finance various projects. And even when more recently it's become less fashionable, shall we say, and and even though uh, there is more concern being expressed about these sorts of tie-ups with China, this doesn't seem to have deterred Cambridge, which continues to throw itself at China and at Chinese money. One of the characters you mention quite frequently in your piece is Professor Stephen Toop, who is the Vice-Chancellor of the University. Can you explain a bit more about his involvement in all this? Well, Toop seems to be extremely uh, enthusiastic for engagement with China and for engagement with Chinese ventures, which will make money for the university. He would dress this up rather differently and say that 
it is important at a time like this uncertainty in the world, tension, that academics talk to each other and that academic institutions engage with each other. You know, which is fair enough, but it's making a lot of assumptions about the nature of those institutions that you're talking to. And I think you need to be rather more hard-nosed and realistic about who it is you're talking to and the links that a lot of these places have with the Communist Party, with Communist Party entities, and with the security and military establishment when it comes to research. Harry, you are a student at Cambridge and the editor of the Cambridge Student, which is one of Cambridge's main newspapers, and you've also written a bit about China and and Cambridge. How do students at the moment see Cambridge's relationship with China? Um, I think at Cambridge, British students, home students, are apathetic. Our articles didn't really prompt any um, outcry, nor has any of the more blatant instances of links with the Chinese government. One group, well, much more exercised um, for obvious reasons are Hong Kong students, quite a few of whom I know, and they're very anxious, often with good reason, about Chinese government proxies, including mainland students in some instances and their kind of institutions like the um, CSSA, the Chinese Scholars and Students Association, carrying out essentially surveillance on them with efforts to intimidate them, which was one reason I was so keen to give them a bit of help and bring all this to attention. In one of the points that you also make in your piece is that Cambridge strongly denies that accepting Chinese money in any way impinges on academic freedom but then you also note that various students as Harry says have you know, have obviously had problems arise. This particular student Ulysses Chow said he no longer felt safe and was bombarded with online abuse and a death threat. What do you think it means for students in Cambridge now that all this Chinese money is pouring in? It certainly restricts freedom of speech for some students at least. Uh, I was, or some Hong Kong students, to mention them again, they invited me to um, take part in a pretty basic general panel discussion about human rights in China, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, and everything else. And it was, they, they then decided it was going to be a film, and then it wouldn't happen at all because they were so scared, based on their experiences in Cambridge, that their families back home would face retribution from the Chinese government, which I found fairly astonishing but they seem to now take for granted. So it certainly had dire consequences, as I see it. And Ian, do you get the impression that Cambridge is now trying to wean itself off Chinese money, or has it not really addressed that? I don't think they get it, to be quite honest with you. We've seen, is it the Jesuit, the magazine of Jesus College, the spring edition that came out, had this extraordinary one-page statement, really, on the way they approached China studies. And it was incredibly defensive, quite prickly, very much saying that, you know, we absolutely support academic freedom. But it was was very much voiced in a way that did not really accept that there'd been any issue at all. And that's the sense I get, that they regard this as being rather unpleasant, unreasonable intrusion on perhaps their right to do what they want to do. And I don't detect really any sense of contrition, any sense that perhaps they have uh, overindulged the Chinese Students and Scholars Association. Uh, And I, I name them rather than the shorthand Chinese students, because I think there are a lot of Chinese students who are concerned, who do share unease 
about the Communist Party and its behaviour, but for the reasons we, we've mentioned, just do not feel they can voice that because you know they are being watched effectively. The CSSA is a the, the eyes and ears of the Communist Party. It, it's a linked to the embassy, it's part financed by the embassy. And I don't think Cambridge gets it, even now, even after everything which has come out about research, about the intimidation of Hong Kong students. I just don't think that they grasp just how serious this is for, uh, as a matter of whether it's freedom of expression or for the students themselves. Harry, do you get the impression this is a problem isolated to Cambridge or are you aware of other universities also taking as much funding from the Chinese government? Cambridge far surpasses any other university in the extent of um, its willingness to allow the growth of Chinese influence. Um, For example, its dealings with Huawei, um, where, well, by contrast, Oxford has, on ethical grounds, severed all links with Huawei, so of most Ivy League universities, I think perhaps even all of them, not Cambridge, which has multi-million deals with Huawei, which um, allowed it, let it fund a Jesus College white paper, which Mr. Toot wrote an introduction to. And given Huawei's involvement in the Xinjiang camps and its um, the doubts about its um, activities, carrying up surveillance in the West, that's also, I think, fairly surprising and it far exceeds the open area of the university in that respect. And just finally, Ian, it's notable that Professor Toop is himself a professor of human rights. Do you think he has slightly compromised himself over the issue of China? I think he's totally compromised himself. I mean, I, I, well, I remember when I first saw his human rights background, my, my chin hit the ground. I mean, I, I think that somebody who has the training he has who supposedly has an understanding of broader human rights concerns to be uh, behaving towards China, towards China research, towards the issues we've discussed of, of freedom of expression in the manner he does is frankly quite shocking. He should know better. Thank you, Ian and Harry. Next up. A few months ago, the priest Marcus Walker wrote in The Spectator about the Church of England's plans to move away from parish spending, which helps the poorest diocese, and instead move towards newer projects focused on bringing in new members. At the time, Marcus and those who agreed with him were labelled by the church as rascally voices, but new reporting shows that Marcus may have been closer to the mark than initially thought. He joins me now, along with Dave Mell, Director of Evangelism and Discipleship for the CV. Marcus, in your piece this week, you start by talking about the Church of England creating 10,000 lay-led churches. For the layman, can you start by explaining what is a lay-led church? Well, I mean, the per- to be perfectly honest, I don't know. This is a plan that was launched last week uh, to a certain amount of fanfare. It, From what we can see, the intention would be to have 10,000 new lay-led churches and other places I talked about as lay-led communities. Um, When they're using the word of church, they suggest that they be standalone as communities. They might be actually a little bit more flexible, but the original, but the wording that certainly seemed to be used when they were being launched would be that they would be these churches. I suspect they would each have different forms and a different nuance themselves. They say, they said in the the chapter who's launching it, said that they would be 
he said they'd be small in nature, they'd be meeting in people's homes, there'd be 20 to 30 people attending them. At least that's how they intended to start. I'm probably, in a way, not, not the best person to say what they'd be like, because I'm only responding to what's been put out there in the public domain. Dave, in fact, might be the better person to be able to say what it would be. Well, Dave, in that case, let me direct the question to you. What, what do you make of the plan for 10,000 lay-led churches? And, and what do you see a lay-led church as being? Yeah, well, I, I think I need to say first, there, this, there isn't a plan. The article uh, confuses two diff- completely different things. So there is a thing called the Gregory Centre, uh, which serves churches, networks. It, it's part of the Church of England because Bishop Islington's involved, but it, it's, it serves denominations, networks, who made this statement about 10,000 lay-led churches at a conference of their own with church leaders. But because of an article in the Church Times, there was a confusion then with what the Church of England is saying because we have this uh, developing vision and strategy, which is going to our General Synod on Monday, It says two clear things. We're we're looking for the parish system to continually to be revitalised, as it always has for mission, and as part of that, creating 10,000 new Christian communities. But this language of lay-led is not anywhere in any of the Church of England documents. As I said, it comes from a different organisation. Though Marcus says that John McGinley launched this initiative, Again, he launched something to do with the Gregory Centre, not to do with the Church of England, but this article just adds to the confusion uh, of actually a story that's not there. So there wouldn't be... So, I mean, the Church of England could categorically say there wouldn't be any endorsement of the idea of 10,000 lay-led churches or 10,000 lay-led communities at all. We would actually be, be happy to lay that to bed and to say that this has nothing to do with the CV. All we're trying to do is to to look at how do we begin to help parishes to create 10,000 new Christian communities. And the simple way that we got to 10,000, Marcus, to be honest, is to say uh, there's about 12,500 parishes. Could we, in the next 10 years, enable every parish to be able to create some kind of new way of connecting with people uh, within their parish? And that's all that we're saying. Um, but unfortunately, it's got confused with the Gregory Centre, who've got this particular aim for lay-led. And you really need to talk to them about what they mean by lay-led. I think it's worth saying in the Church of England that there's always been a, a mutuality of clergy and lay in, in terms of leading. You know that very well, that the lay people are allowed to lead and are made readers, church army evangelists. It's a really important role. But it's in that mutual responsibility with the clergy. Um, And you and I know how important that is. And that is all part of what the Church of England is saying. So I'd I'd clearly want to say the fears that are being built up around this are are just not uh, what the Church of England is thinking about. Marcus, do you want to respond to that? Well, I mean, it'd be very good news if the Church of England would actually say that this idea is being laid to rest or or the the idea that's come out of the Gregory Centre actually is not one that's tied together with the 10,000 new communities that the General Synod document is talking about. I mean, Dave's entirely right. The leadership of every church is a balance between um, the clergy and the laity and, you know, the church wardens who have responsibilities for keeping order in church, for looking after the buildings, for um, representing all of the laity about how services should be are the most important people in the church. 
frankly. And of course, you know, when it comes to who it is for whom the church, whether, you know, broader or smaller, is actually for, well, of course, it is the laity who are the people, you know, who are the people of God. And all the people, in fact, whether they do or don't come to church, who live and work in and move through, but particularly who live in the parishes. Um, so it'd be very good news if we can actually say, no, actually, this idea, this plan is being put at an arm's length from the Church of England. And I would certainly welcome that if the C of E were able to say that, or certainly if the, uh, if the leadership of the C of E were. Dave, it was only in February of this year that the archbishops of both Canterbury and York took to the spectator to accuse both Marcus and our other writer, Emma Thompson, of being rascally voices for voicing concerns about the direction the Church of England was going. And do you think, once again, this is another moment where we are seeing these rascally voices appearing? I wouldn't necessarily make that accusation. I think that that would be unfair. I think there's been a coming together from a couple of stories that have somehow got put together in a very unfortunate way so uh, and I said this to Marcus on Twitter you know I'm very happy to talk about what the Church of England is saying in terms of what we want to do around developing 10,000 new Christian communities and I think that's really important but not the idea of 10,000 lay led without clergy, without training, without accountability. Uh, I mean uh, Stephen Cottrell said in the paper this is not a dismantling of the parish system neither is it a way of disregarding or devaluing ordained ministry. I mean it couldn't be clearer Marcus from that kind of statement. Well that is true the question is whether the question is whether it's meant, if I'm perfectly honest. And I think there are an awful lot of concerns and genuinely held and I think not unreasonable concerns about what all this is actually going to mean. When the Archbishop of York talks about a mixed ecology church, we are talking about how resources are going to be spent. And when we're talking about 10,000 communities, we aren't just talking about each of these parishes as they currently are, and, you know, we're talking about these old buildings, and we're talking about stipendary ministry, and we're talking about people who've been trained in colleges and all that, of their, off their own bat, being able to produce something that may be of that traditional... What we are talking about substantially, and this is one of the things that's so important that I think I bring out in the article, is that there's been a serious move in the last five years in the redirecting of scarce resources in the Church of England away from subsidising parishes and the parochial system and Churches that, indeed, in the C of E's reports, they talk about, you know, uh, failing or churches that need to be sustained. And quite often that's because there's been a huge change in demographic in those areas. And there are all sorts of reasons why. Towards exciting, you know, sexy, brand new projects, which a lot of these 10,000 new communities will probably be like. And my great concern, the concern of an awful lot of priests and laity from around the country is this, that as we redirect money away from the traditional churches, away from the C of E as we've kind of known it, away from the 12,500 parishes that are existing, some flourishing, some find it very difficult to make ends meet, and as we redirect money away from that towards the new projects and the new communities, will this, instead of bringing more people in, and instead of revitalising the church, is it instead going to be a huge displacement activity? Is it instead going to ensure that the older, more difficult to sustain parish buildings 
end up closing down, being sold off for housing or to become a swimming pool or whatever else, whilst we get a glitzy new thing that'll get funding for five years and then is going to fall apart once that funding gets pulled. The fear, the great fear, is that this mixed ecology church that the Archbishop of York talks about, which sounds awfully fluffy and nice and that's all just getting along, actually is about transforming the Church of England and transferring its, I suppose you could say, its assets, both historical and financial, away from the way that the Church of England has always been and towards a whole load of new, exciting projects that are actually not going to do what it is that we hope that they get... that it is hoped that they would do. Yeah, I think I uh, I can clearly say to you, no, that isn't what is planned. Uh, you're right, there is a real challenge about resources at the moment, and we're, and we're all going to be facing that and continue to face that, and there, there are not necessarily easy answers to that uh, within, you know, across the churches, across parishes. But I've just come back to the point that the vast majority of these new Christian communities will come from parishes. So let me give you a sexy example uh, in my own parish. So I I am involved with a a rural parish on the edge of Cambridge. It's a classic one vicar, five parishes benefice, eight people going to our local church. We've started with the vicar, another service in the village hall, because actually only purely because it's a better place in the centre of the village than where the church is. And that's it, really. And, you know, there are 30 people coming to that. It's not sexy, exciting. It's just that's bread and butter parish work. You know, that's what we've done with an 8 o'clock service and a 10 o'clock service and a 6 o'clock service. So I think there's a, the danger is of creating a kind of straw person of what this might look like when actually it is the bread and butter of, of our ministry to be the church for everybody, uh, as you say rightly, and therefore we need as many ways as possible for us to do that. But again, I just quote what Stephen's uh, Archbishop Season said, this is not a dismantling of the parish system, uh, neither is it a, a way of disregarding or devaluing ordained ministry. And, and before we mention the 10,000 new communities in what's said comes the parish system revitalised for mission. The clergy, our buildings, our training are absolutely key to this. It won't happen without that. They are the cornerstone and and no one is suggesting anything else. And I think it's unhelpful when we do. The trouble is though, Dave, the money doesn't follow the words. And if you look at what's happened over the last five years, you've had the complete eradication of the Darlow formula, which was created to support the poorer dioceses that don't have all of the big resources and endowments of dioceses like London and Lincoln and the really ancient ones that got left loads of stuff in the Middle Ages and God bless the people who did that when they did. But for those poorer dioceses that are created much more recently in just Dana the money, the Darlow formula went. And that was £104 million that was spent, you know, within the 2014-2016 the, the period. period. And out of that came, yes, some funding for the poorest of the poor parishes, which is wonderful and welcome. But there are a heck of a lot of parishes between the poorest of the poor and everything else. And instead, that money went to fund the the strategic development funding, the SDF, which is not just about creating, you know, exactly what parishes should be doing. And we're all delighted when a parish finds a new way 
to reach into people, find some new, you know, realise that it'll actually work, you know, some a one service might work better in a village hall, and actually let's have a new revitalised nine o'clock, let's do it. And even so, we did an even song in the city pitched at uh, city workers and people who work around miss singing, even song they all came in. We all do things like that, that's a wonderful bread and butter, the parish ministry, but that isn't what the SDF funding is about. It's about creating a brand new church in a former Chinese restaurant in Rochdale with, with what, five full-time members of staff right next to a 12th century old crumbling parish building that could desperately do with five members of staff and desperately do with the money that it took to buy the restaurant and to transform it into a church. And that's the trouble. It's, so the, the concern is that in the, the, the throwing of money at the brand new projects, it will inevitably, and it already is coming at the expense of the parish churches and the parish system that don't have their own resources and whose dioceses don't have the resources to sustain them. And we've seen this in Chelmsford, where 60 priests are being cut, 22% of the entire role of priests in the diocese. And how many parishes are closing because the Darlow formula was ended and Chelmsford's a poor diocese and they can't afford to keep that going. And instead, they're building exciting little new projects of, you know, a little church that's formed out of a shop on the street front or whatever else. But those communities that have those churches that are used to being ministered to in the traditional way of the C of E are finding that pulled and it coming to an end completely. And that's a fear and that's a concern that we have. I mean, it, the, the simple answer to that is, A, you pick out one particular SDF project, but there are lots of those projects. You know, I was thinking of some recently up in uh, Middlesbrough and Durham that are working, you know, through and uh, in parish churches. The other thing to say is I think there are about 200 of these SDF churches and 12,500 uh, traditional parishes. So how on earth that would kind of completely change the Church of England, I'm not sure the mass kind of really stacks that up. And uh, because the, the what you talk about is the real bread and butter of the life of the Church of England. And that's why in the vision and strategy, we're calling for the parish system being revitalised for mission, as, and part of that is this creation of 10,000 new communities. And yes, lay leaders will be part of that, but they're not lay-led churches as though we've kind of suddenly given up on ordination because it is interesting, isn't it, that this year is a record number of people going forward for ordination. So again, that doesn't seem to square with your worries. Now, I recognise, um, and I think you say this in the article, you know, clergy are really struggling at the moment, and I totally recognise that. They've They've done a, a stupendous truck job in the hardest of times. And I think we just need to continually say that and to say, you know, they are the backbone of who we are and what we do. And, and that is going to be absolutely key as we... And I think the other thing I'd want to say about this is that at the heart of the vision is this whole thing about being centred on Jesus. And that, you know, we can argue about should it be lay-led, but, but the thing that brings us together is... What does it mean to be centred on Jesus in 2021 and what kind of church do we continue to be? Uh, I love the, uh, Gerald Arbuckle, who's a Roman Catholic uh, theologian who talks about driving to the heart of the tradition. And I think you and I would agree that's really what we're about. Yeah, it doesn't mean we're always going to stay the same, but it, it is about what does it mean to be the Church of England, uh, driving to the heart of our tradition and then working out what does that look like in 20, you know, 2021 on to 2030. I mean, I'm, uh, I've been involved in this vision and strategy for the last year 
and uh, you know I've not been involved in the kind of centre of the church uh, before all this, but actually I am really excited about the possibilities for our church and through that for our nation, because at the heart of this is is an attempt to say what what does it mean for us to be able to really connect with everybody uh, in our nation, because that is our our particular DNA as as Anglicans, and that is going to mean the things we're talking about. So you know, being younger and more diverse, so we represent the nation that we are called to serve. This strange language, which isn't necessarily helpful, of missionary disciples or apostles, or but that whole idea that people are sent out in their whole lives to live for Christ. This is all really important to our future as a church, and you and I, Marcus, would, would share that, I think, together. Marcus and Dave, thank you very much. And finally, streaking is one of those things that will make even the dullest of public events memorable. But how does it feel to actually bear all in front of a crowd? Poppy Royds writes about this liberating experience for The Spectator this week, and after reading her article, I wanted to know more. So here she is, along with one of the streaking heroes highlighted in the piece, a man who's taken off his clothes in more countries than most of us, Mark Roberts. Poppy, in this week's issue of The Spectator, you write about streaking and and how you've long enjoyed streaking can you start by explaining to listeners when you discovered this hobby (laughs) um later in life I suppose my father loved to get naked he is known as ginger michael jackson dancing king by his friends because he would get naked at parties and I mentioned in the piece um that he likes to yeah jump into swimming pools naked and then dance around the pool and a lot of my friends have been um quite shocked by that (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I got naked I probably got naked first time in public around the age of 17 maybe um a classic streaking through the quad kind of thing with my friends um and then it's just escalated since then And, and and, and why do you love it so much I think the freedom I think I don't really, I like, I like making people laugh. I don't know, there's a lot of posing out there. People you know, take themselves very seriously. Being naked is sort of meant to be very sexy and airbrushed and all that kind of stuff. And I suppose with streaking, it's a completely different thing. It's you can't airbrush yourself. You can't, you know, what you're showing is what people see. It's like the real thing. And it's very fun. Yeah, and lots of people laugh. So yeah, I think that's. But you, you make the point in your piece that it's been, obviously, COVID has been a, a bad time for streaking with no crowds to cheer you on. Are you, but, are you, but are you looking forward to, to sort of getting back in, getting back into it? Um, yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> um, definitely. I have actually um, this year sort of been thinking that maybe I wouldn't be streaking anymore. But I think that was because there were no crowds around and there wasn't any like fun to be had. And it sort of did felt, feel quite weird, the idea of streaking at this time. But um, yeah. Now that festivals are in sight, I can kind of feel like it's going to come back. Yeah. Mark, you are mentioned in Poppy's piece as being one of her icons and you are also one of the world's top streakers. Can you tell us how you got into it? One of the world's, sorry, I am the world's top streaker. <laughs> <He was. laughs> well, how did, you, how did you gain that title then? Uh, well, obviously, I've, I've been around the world. It's, you know, streaking and performing. Most, and I agree with that thing Poppy's just been saying about it's all about being liberated and don't care about what your body looks like you know it's, it's that moment of freedom but more so especially for me I like to make people laugh so much I turn it into a performance each time I don't just run and wave to the crowd I try to do something 
funny. And I have things written across my body that hopefully, you know, people will see in the newspapers that will make them laugh because they went there to actually see what happened. And talking about the pandemic, well, I went to Hungary a few months ago for the Super Cup to win as the Champions League final and the, uh, the Europa League. And a third of the stadium allowed in. And to get two negative COVID tests, obviously I had a ticket. I could only stay in the country 72 hours, but I went to streak, obviously, and I didn't check out the law in Hungary properly enough because I, I dropped down the wall, dressed as a referee. I was going to go on as a referee just before kickoff second half. As I dropped the wall, a guy grabbed me getting over and then three were waiting for me when I dropped the 10 feet, carted me off, put me in three jails. The third one was like a boot camp and it was really nasty. I got strip searched. He said, off clothes. I thought, bloody hell, I've been waiting for this all day. <laughs> so, but the thing is, when I took my clothes off, I had stuff written across my body, and it said, lock this down across my body. And he also had an elephant over my little fella with a mask on. He looked at me and said, What is that? <laughs> so an and, and what happened then? And he said, Oh, no COVID, because I had a mask on. I said, Yeah, no COVID. It's the only time he smiled, and then went back into his nasty routine. But, um, yeah, it was it was a serious. I didn't realise, you know, because I hadn't even been. I wasn't even naked. I you know, I just dropped the wall, and I just said I got caught up in the moments. And um, I believe if I'd have been naked on the pitch, I'd have got two years in prison. Jesus! Wow! Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it's the only one I was glad that I didn't actually perform. And and clearly the rules are different in different countries. But but Mark, what are the rules in the UK about stripping off? Well, the UK is ridiculous, really. I've got a lawyer who absolutely loves it. He's been my lawyer for over 20 years. I get, There's no law specifically for streaking. So every time I run on, I get charged with causing harassment, alarm and distress to the public. Excuse me, 60,000 people were cheering their heads off there. And I did the Commonwealth Games a few years ago. I always go to trial, plead not guilty, because I'm not out to cause harassment, alarm or distress to anybody. Quite the opposite. So I went to trial. We're going to subpoena the whole 60,000 crowd, and that includes the Queen. Because if she was there, if she enjoyed it, we need to hear, hear what she said. So the, obviously the, the prosecution dropped the charges. Um, but would it be nice to see Her Majesty turn up to, you know, to say, oh, look, there's Mark again. <laughs> <laughs> Pop, Poppy, have you ever got in trouble? Have you ever got in trouble for streaking? Um, just um, once. But again, I mean, really, I, mean, I am a novice compared to Mark. Just streaking down Portobello Road, the police uh, did follow us, and I mentioned it, but um, they busted us, told me to put my clothes on along with my friend, and then said to me, um, you should probably get a tan. And that was it. Um, yeah, I think there's probably a difference between streaking at Wembley or in a very, very public area to the places where I've done, which is a bit, yeah, it's more small fry. But, you know, you're aspirational, Mark. I look to you. I really want to, I want to hear all your tricks. Well, Mark, what's your advice to people who, or Poppy, or to people who might never have streaked before but are looking to get into it as a hobby? Well, the first time, first thing I'm going to say is have a good lawyer. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> That's not very reassuring advice. <laughs> is it expensive? Well, my, my lawyer does it pro bono because he loves it so much. Uh, amazing. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, no, seriously, though, if, if anyone wants to go and streak at an event, and I find most people who streak at events now, they do it the wrong time. They go on during the game and they're changing the course of what's happening at, at that moment in time. Mm. 
So a team could be on to score or whatever. I always go on just before half time or when there's a break in play. So I'm not interrupting with any kind of, you know, uh, game or whatever. And also don't stay on too long. Do your little thing, but always get chased. When you're getting chased by seven security, you find an extra gear from somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I've left them for dust many a time. I did the Champions League final in 2002, scored a goal against the Germans. And I've run on, took the ball off them, run through the whole team, scored the goal, went skidding on my knees, stood up, and the King of Spain, it was against Real Madrid, King of Spain was on his feet clapping. So I'm taking it all in. I looked at security and went, come on, chase me. All of them shook their head. Not one of them would chase me, so I had to actually walk myself off. Oh! <laughs> yeah, but I just scored a goal in the Champions League final, so that was good enough for me. <laughs> is, that, is that the streak you're most proud of, Mark? No, I, I, know, I spoke the biggest one ever, the Super Bowl. I went to Texas. The same one, Janet Jackson had a malfunction, oh, but I didn't know she, she had that because that was the back warming up. That was in the halftime show. I <laughs> jumped on as the referee. Stopped the kick the kickoff for the second half, so I'm not interrupting the game. And one of the players went, what's up, ref, man? And I just ripped my clothes off. All Velcro. I'm sorry. And I said a swear word. F all, man. And just started to dance. I <laughs> think the referee's lost his mind. I'm dancing in circle. The crowd knows what's happening. But all the police are confused. They were just stood there going, what's going on? I was literally dancing for, an, for a whole minute before oh, every cop oh. in the stage would come at me. Oh, it was great. Yeah. And then Mark, how did you get onto the stage for that one? Was that what, did, did someone ask you to do that? Uh, well, no, I went the year before to San Diego on a promise of, of a ticket out for $500. When I got there, he wanted 5000 So I couldn't do it. Um, so that was, it was meant to be, really, because I wasn't prepared for what was to happen uh, the following year. A sponsor came to me and said, listen, we've got tickets for the biggest thing in America. I said, what's that? Um, he said, the Oscars. I said, the Oscars? He said, yeah, I've got tickets for you to go to the Oscars if you want to go to the Oscars. Just have our name on your chest. I said, that's not the biggest thing in America. And he said, it is. I said, the Super Bowl's the biggest thing. He said, you can't do the Super Bowl. I said, why not? It can't be done. It's never, never been done. Is that right? Yeah. Get me a ticket and I'll show you, mate. It can be done. And I did it in style. <laughs> Poppy, there's one place you say that Mark hasn't hasn't stripped streaked yet, which is uh, the Shoreditch House, which which is where you have streaked. Can you just tell us about that? <laughs> well, Mark, actually, I didn't check my facts. Have you streaked at Shoreditch House? Uh, no, but it's okay. now it's on now it's on the list. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. So I um that was probably my favourite streak out of probably my. 10 streaks. I was there just with my friends and they have a rooftop swimming pool and everyone was getting very jolly and everyone sits around the pool. It was very rowdy that night. And I walked around the edge of the pool being like, okay, I can do this. I can walk around. I've like sussed it out. I can get past the crowds. So yeah, I just stripped off and ran around um, and everyone loved it. Obviously everyone was very boozed up, but the Shoreditch House lot did not. The staff were not happy. <laughs> they um, they shouted at my friends saying, this is not Magaloo. And then the security guards proceeded to chase me around with those red and white towels that they have. <laughs> um, but I broke, managed to break free quite a few times before they actually caught me and chucked me out. <laughs> is that one for the list, Mark? Uh, well, it's on the list now, yeah. <laughs> one, one of the silliest ones I've done was the Chelsea Flower Show. 
Oh my God. Yeah, I've, I've done every major event in the world. So it's all about humor and creating a performance. So I thought, bloody hell. Yeah. Yeah, but I went to the, the Chelsea Flower Show, went to, went to the prize garden, a million pound garden. Got into the middle of it, took all my clothes off, and I was painted green from the neck down. I had a ginger wig, pube wig over my little fella, a pair of wellies on, put a ginger ginger beard on, and sat there, stood there with a Smurfs hat on, looked like a demented gnome. <laughs> and no one came near me. I just stood there like a gnome for about three, three or four minutes. I thought, what's going on? So I saw this, so I walked back, got over the barrier, and as soon as I went into the crowd, security started to chase me. And as he chased me, all the crowd were shouting, leave the gnome alone, leave the gnome alone. <laughs> <laughs> but and so, gnomes weren't allowed on any garden up to that point. The following year, they allowed gnomes to be used in gardens. Thanks to you. Bobby and Mark, thank you for coming on and for keeping your clothes on. And that's it for the edition this week. If you've enjoyed what you heard and want to know more about the stories we touched on, do subscribe to the magazine for a more in-depth dive. And of course, please do leave us a review and a star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. I'm Nara Prendergast and I hope you have a brilliant weekend. It's coming home.